The main topic today is similar to what we studied last, was it last spring or last fall that we studied Esther? Does anybody remember? Last year. Last, last, last year. year. Well, I, I mean that. Last we, fall. We both That's right. We did, because we, we basically did Ruth and Naomi and Esther, right? Yeah. So, and probably in that order. I think. Okay. Thank you. Didn't mean to slam the door. It didn't take as much as I thought it would. So we're going to talk a lot about the book of Esther right now. And remember where we left off last week? We were talking about how Saul failed. Saul was supposed to kill everybody associated with King Agag and that whole Amalek clan. And we talked about, you know, that's an ugly thing that happens in the Bible and it really bothers us, but the truth is, in the long haul, it makes sense. And it makes sense in that context. It's hard for us to imagine God ordering genocide, but that's because we're not looking at it from that perspective. We're looking at it from our modern perspective. And the other thing I've always reminded myself of is whatever you read in the Bible, no matter how much it bothers you, it is, after all, God, the creator, Lord of everything that God created, and I guess if I don't like the way God does things, I should probably just shut up about it. Have you ever thought about that? Seriously? How many parents in the room have at some time or another just said, because I said so, that's why. Because you realize that you're not reasoning with somebody who can be reasoned with. I'm so glad you joined us tonight. And I remember when I was a kid thinking, I'll never say that to my children. And then one day I heard it come out of my mouth and I went, oh no, I did it. And then I realized that that was the difference between being a kid and being grown up. Because as a grown up, I realized there are just certain things that kids don't understand. And you're just making yourself crazy trying to make them understand. And so you just say, because I said so, and someday you'll understand. And you know what? Someday I did. That's the truth. Everybody with me on that? I don't have any dissent from anyone here because we've all lived it, haven't we? Well, so at the end of the day, when we're talking about whatever God does in the Bible, even the stuff we don't approve of, we have to kind of at some point say, well, you know, because God said so, that's why. And I only say that because expecting God to do things that make sense to the, crea to the creatures you know, to ask the creator to explain himself to the create, create Ed is kind of arrogant, isn't it? You know, and, and honestly, isn't that a little bit like, you know, trying to explain something to your child? You love them dearly and you know what's best for them, but you also know they're not going to be able to understand what you're doing. So you just say, because I said so. So that's just a little side comment there that, you know, if you really accept that there is a God and that everything in your Bible is true, then at some point you have to accept that if God put it in there and God said to do it, then God had a good enough reason for God. 
and God being God and all that, it's probably a better reason than I would ever be able to understand. But if we study scripture, sometimes we understand better than we thought we could. Because of this story right here, you can see that even though Saul was commissioned to destroy every living relationship to a certain people group, and it seemed wrong, and it seemed wrong to Saul in a different way. He wasn't so concerned about putting all those people to death and all their animals and everything. He just thought it was a big waste. I mean, gosh, some of these cattle are awesome. Why would we do that? Because <laughs> God said so. And he got in trouble because he didn't. He, he, uh, he wanted a grandstand where Agag was concerned, so that's why he didn't kill him right away, because he kind of wanted to show off his prize. And that's pride. And God doesn't have much favorable, he does nothing favorable to say about pride. And so Saul loses his position as king, and the high priest Samuel has to kill Agag and apparently not soon enough to prevent offspring that would eventually produce a guy named Haman. And that's where we are right now because Haman's presence in the book of Esther tells us that even though all the Agagites were supposed to be gone, one survived at least, and he had 10 sons. And that's where we are right now, 600 years later in the book of Ruth. If you have a Bible and you want to read along, you want to go to the book of Ruth, or Ruth, I mean Esther, I beg your pardon. Esther, Esther, Esther. You know why I got sidetracked? Because in my mind, I took a little side trip around that thing, Agag. I thought, every time I see Agag or Agag, I just want to laugh like Popeye. Agag, <laughs> And because I allowed myself to wander down that rabbit trail in my thought, I started saying Ruth when I met Esther. I'm glad we have a smaller than usual class tonight. <laughs> yeah, moving right along. <laughs> Here's a little aside for you. Do you know that Esther in Hebrew is Hadassah? And do you know what Hadassah means? Myrtle? Like the myrtle bush shrub? And what do you know about the myrtle? What, what is significant about myrtles? They grow on mountainsides where nothing else will grow. They grow in the desert. They'll grow, if you watch, you know, the, the gardening shows, they'll say, well, if you want to plant something that'll survive anything, you get myrtle. Isn't it interesting that this whole story centers around a woman named Esther? And it's about how Israel survived the greatest threat to its existence to that date. Fascinating, isn't it? So we're going to run ahead to chapter 3 of Esther. Everybody find Esther because that's a tough book to find sometimes. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's you've got Kennedy there. Kennedy, Esther is. You kind of you, you go like Job's a big book. If you can find Job and then go forward, you'll you'll come across Esther. Well, you've got tabs; those are handy. So. So the the king, Artaxerxes, in some translations. Uh, he promotes Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and exalted him and seated him higher than all the princes with him, all the princes, and all the sovereign servants who were in the sovereign's gate bowed and did obeisance to Haman. This is a different translation, so it's kind of fun. For so the sovereign had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or do obeisance. Or obeisance. Anyway, he wouldn't bow. And the sovereign's servants who were in the sovereign's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the sovereign's command? And it came to be when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether the words of Mordecai would stand for he had told them that he was Yehudi that's Jewish and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or do obeisance Haman was filled with wrath but it was despicable in his eyes to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had informed him of the people of Mordecai. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Yehudim, who were throughout all the reign of Artaxerxes, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of, the, of sovereign Artaxerxes, someone cast pur, P-U-R, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day and from month to month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Agar. This is pretty wild, this version, isn't it? So let's go to the, the uh, English Standard Version. I just thought you'd enjoy hearing some different uh it's hard to read. yeah i like a challenge though so i i kind of oh, kennedy where was it i told you <laughs> joe <clears throat> You can read ahead and then you'll know all the answers to the questions. Not really. So, anyway, the gist of the story is, is Mordecai wouldn't bow before Haman. And Haman was really, really mad about that. Because, after all, 
those people who ruled absolutely saw, saw themselves as being like God. And they were really not satisfied unless people treated them like God. So, so then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. By the way, does that not sound like children? Or in the workplace when someone triangulates? Because you see this all the time in human relations, don't you? People triangulate. You know, so I'm going to see if I can pit his will against his will, and I want to see which one wins, and then that one I'm going to be friends with. <laughs> so they're trying to see whether they can provoke Haman into punishing Mordecai. And he told, they told him this, and... and uh, Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, he's too chicken to do the deed himself. That's what that's saying. And so Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, all the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes. And the first month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it, it cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Artaxerxes, there is a, a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed. What this is describing, by the way, is a kind of witchcraft. It's like divination. They're, they're playing the tarot cards. Um, they're reading the tea leaves. They're trying to find the perfect time to approach the king about this because basically they're, what, what this is describing is they're in league with the devil. That's, that's what this means, okay? Can you all pass these down to our two newer people and make sure they have a copy and... So what's being described here is, shall we say, anything but what Jews consider. So this is not just, I mean, I want you to see this right now. This is not just a setup where it's Haman's will versus Mordecai's will. That's not what this is about. We're looking at the book of Esther. So I know you're familiar with it because you were in the class and we were doing it, but this isn't about what it looks like it's about. This is about the God of the Jews versus the gods of Persia. And in particular, the gods that Haman's string of people are devoted to. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you hear a lot about God sort of exercising authority over the gods and, and some of them are just idols. And there's, the Bible makes a distinction in the Old Testament. An idol is just an idol. I mean, we could, we could draw a little picture on this cup and we could say, that's our idol. And that's all it will ever be is a cup. 
but there were also gods. Um, and these gods were real. These, these were demonic beings. These were, these were beings from hell. Okay? So what's being described here is a plot that is actually being orchestrated by hell. And that's what's being described here. We're looking at Esther chapter 3 and... So we get down to, let's see, verse 8 of chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Artaxerxes, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Think about that. In a little bit, I'm going to ask you why you think from time immemorial people have hated the Jews. Why has there been a constant hatred of the Jews throughout the ages? Why? That's the question we're going to ask. Here's one of the oldest explanations right here. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. <laughs> they came to this conclusion and offered this proposal to the king after casting lots and talking to evil spirits, looking for the perfect time and day. Just think about that. I mean... Also, um, people, they bear fruit. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, what Germany had a problem with. Yeah. They were getting all kinds of business, and Germany was not people there. And, and this will actually come up later in Esther that this is, this is another reason he has a problem with them. They're prospering. <laughs> and now, a person could argue that the reason they're prospering is because their laws are different from everybody else's. But apparently, this hasn't occurred to them. And so he says, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's businesses, business. And they may put it into the king's treasury. He's paying a bribe to the king for permission to kill off all the Jews. Think about this. This, this is not just a guy who's a little PO'd because one old man wouldn't bow. This is a guy who is bent on the destruction of that people group. This is diabolical. You know what the word diabolical means? What's it mean? It means wicked. Yeah. Evil. But it's a plot of the devil. Diabolical is a word that describes a particular kind of evil. It's a ingenious, terrifying plot that could only be hatched by the devil. That's what diabolical really means. This is diabolical. This, this is wicked to the nth degree. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. Do you notice that the author of this book has mentioned again that he's an Agagite? Everybody laugh like Popeye now. Let's just get it out of our system so we can keep going. <laughs> You missed that part, Julie. I was telling him that I got wandering off in my thought about how much that makes me want to laugh like Popeye, and it made me pick Ruth instead of Esther. 
So it's funnier if you know the backstory, I hope. And again, maybe it's not funny at all, but anyhow. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's seraphs, uh, satraps rather, and to the governors over all the provinces and all the officials of the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. By the way, this country was vast. This was a kingdom. This was like Britain was you know, in the 1817-1800s, there was, you know, they, they used to say there's no place, the sun never sets on the British kingdom because they own something everywhere. This is how big this nation is. It's huge. It was written in the name of King Artaxerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews. Young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Contrast that with the passage from Samuel that we read where God commanded, what did God command Saul to do? He called, he, he commanded Saul to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of Agag's people and everything they had. And not to plunder, by the way. So 600 years later, that decision of Saul turns around and bites somebody in the you-know-what. A copy of the document was to be issued a decree in every province and proclamation people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So that's chapter 3. The next chapters describe how Esther is really terrified, but Mordecai says, look, God put you in this position for a time like this. And the truth is, is you've got two options. You can, you can pretend you're not a Jew and survive this. Or you can go ahead and admit that these are your people and do something about it. And so her courage becomes an issue here. And by the way, just like courage, just like diabolical has a deeper meaning, courage means doing something that you're afraid to do. It doesn't take any courage to do something you're not afraid to do. I mean, it just means you're not afraid of that. You know, I'm not, I, I'm afraid of heights, I guess, but... I've climbed high places, and every time I did it, it took courage. I just decided I wanted to do it, so I did. And that took courage because it was something I would just soon not do. If you bring your pet snake in here, I don't want to play with it. I'm not afraid of snakes. <laughs> I don't, I'm not afraid of snakes, but I have no particular interest in playing with one as a pet either. And if you say, here, touch my snake, I'll say, well, all right. That will take courage because I just soon not. You know, if you have a pet tarantula and you say, oh, it's okay, you can let it crawl all over you, it won't bother you. It would take courage for me to let it do that because everything in me says, no, big hairy spider, not going to happen. Okay? Courage. Sounds like I'm getting ready to sing a song from the Wizard of Oz. What do they got that you ain't got? Courage! <laughs> all right. So Esther 
throughout chapter 4, 5, 6, or 5, very carefully leads the king who's basically has so much authority over so much that he can't keep track of it all. So he doesn't know he's been misled. He doesn't really know the depth of this. And protocol won't allow him to see his queen Esther without certain rules being followed. So she follows all the rules very carefully, fearing for her life every minute along the way, and eventually convinces him that Haman has been deceiving them all, deceiving everybody, and that he's actually the one that's the problem. So, and, and I just, I think there's a, a, Jewish scholars believe that Mordecai wrote this book. Um, makes sense to me. But it, it says in chapter 5, starting at verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. This is going to be a great day. All the people I hate are going to get murdered and pillaged. I can't wait. What a guy. And what Haman saw that Mordecai was at the king's gate and that neither he didn't, he didn't rise or tremble before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. What a dope. Haman was a moron. That's not in your Bible, by the way. That's my commentary. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. In the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had a gallows made. He's not just a moron, he's a sick moron. And by the way, the word gallows has been, you know, we were talking about how we got from Yahweh to, to uh, Jehovah. Gallows is another one of these words that's been mistranslated. The Persians invented crucifixion. They're the ones credited with inventing crucifixion. What was being prepared was a special platform where they were going to do crucifixions. They want to crucify these people. Which, by the way, one of the fascinating things about Esther, if you were in our study group, you'll know this. When we were doing Esther, the fascinating thing about this book is, is that it never mentions God. This book does not ever talk about God, and yet God's all over it. And it doesn't allude to Christ in the more direct way that you see in virtually every other book in the Old Testament. And yet Christ is all over this. It, it's really an amazing book. So he's planning to have these people crucified. And on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring a book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And, and I love this. Like, my favorite nighttime storybook is the one that's all about me. 
oh, wow, this is so good. I love the part where I'm wonderful. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had brought had sought to lay hands on King Arthur. So I didn't tell you about this, but there was a place earlier in the book where Mordecai warned the king that some guys were plotting to kill him. They'd gotten into his inner circle and they were going to kill him. And so he's reading, you know, his bedtime reading is basically the account of all of his affairs. He's like he's listening to the Watergate tapes or the, or the White House tapes of Nixon, you know, for entertainment, right? That's, that's a really obscure joke. Don't even try to get it. So he remembers Mordecai had his back in a critical time. And, he, you know, interestingly enough, by coincidence, this happens to be brought to his attention in the middle of the night when he can't sleep the night before all these people are supposed to get killed. Kind of amazing. And he said, what did I ever do to thank him for that? <laughs> and the king's young men who attended him said, well, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I, this is so funny. This is, it's, it's sad and funny all at the same time. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one the king's most noble officials, to one of the king's most noble officials. Then... Let, the, then let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him to the horse through the square and the city, proclaiming before them, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jews, so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights in the honor. Can we just stop and chuckle at this? This is really funny. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh, and all his friends, oi, what a day I've had, he says. And Haman told his wife and his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeres said to him, If Mordecai, before, you, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Esther prepares this whole feast. And the king said to Haman, went, uh, so the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? 
it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people uh, granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, slave men and women, I would have been silent, for our afflictions is not, affliction is not to be compared with the loss of, to the king. Then King Artaxerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in wrath from the wine drinking. <laughs> Remember how we were studying this last year and, and we found out that the story starts with King Artaxerxes at the frat party getting loaded? <laughs> he, was, he was loaded throughout most of his reign, wasn't he? <laughs> and here he is loaded again. And, and Haman... Uh, but Haman stayed and begged for his life from Queen Esther, Queen Esther for he saw the harm that uh, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, "Will he even assault the queen in my presence? Isn't this comical?" Does this not play out like a, a, a comedy, a stage comedy or something, you know? He's pleading for his life. He falls at her feet just in time for the king to come in and see him, and it doesn't look the same to him. And I just think that is so funny. And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face, and then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king was abated. And on that day, King Artaxerxes gave to the queen the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite. There it is again. The son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, all, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Artaxerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews 
in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So let me just try to. So then he sent the letters out with mounted couriers and uh, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy and kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on that day throughout all the provinces. And a copy was written, and I'm jumping here. Um, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes in blue and white with great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and every city, wherever the king's... um, Decree was written. I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 9 here. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same. That, by the way, is this month. This is New Year's in Israel. We're going to be getting there just as the holiday season has ended. And with any luck, the decorations will still be up. You know, because if they're like me at Christmas time, it stays up a while. I just tell everybody I'm getting an early start for next year. But anyhow... Um, when the king's command uh, and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Artaxerxes and lay hands on those who left. I'm trying to get to something here. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. The Jews struck all their enemies. Okay, yeah, here we go. Uh, 9 verse 6 in Susa the citadel itself the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also uh, that very day the number of those killed I'm trying to get down here there we go here we go all right this is what I was looking for chapter 13 or chapter 9 verse 13 and Esther said if it please the king let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, why would she ask for that? Yeah. Here's something really interesting that I learned uh, this week about this passage. If you read it, it says the next day. Basically, the sons got hung twice. They basically got uh, killed in their town where they lived, presented on the gallows, and then they were taken to the provinces the next day and displayed. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is what happens. You know, this is what happens. And I'm going to tell you some things that are really fascinating that aren't in the notes because I think we'll save the rest for when the whole class is together. But Everything you're reading here is celebrated every year right now at this time. Purim is the name of the celebration. Purim, P-U-R-I-M. That's the name of the celebration. If you Google it, it's fascinating. It's a big deal. It's, it's uh, people drink, party. It's like New Year's Eve and Christmas all rolled into one. 
And the whole idea is this is, this is the, the very um, essence of what it means to be the nation Israel. So here's something really fascinating, and it's one of those things that I, you know, if I could write Hebrew well, I'd show you. But if you look in the oldest existent texts written in the Hebrew, probably by Mordecai's hand, the names of Haman's ten sons are spelled a certain way, and... You know how, like, on your computer, you can select superscript and you can make, like, footnote notations of, like, it. There are four letters that, for some reason, in the oldest texts, that have always been reproduced exactly the same way whenever it's been reproduced. There are four letters that are written in superscript where everything else is written in the standard font. And what the scholars have discovered is, because remember that Hebrew, number, Hebrew letters have numeric values as well. Hebrew calendar, this is, this, is, uh, this is like the year 5000 and something. They don't do Roman calendar like we do. Those four numbers represent 1946. Okay. So the names of Haman's sons, hidden in them is the year 1946. In 1946, around this time of the year, the Nuremberg trials had ended and 10 Nazi criminals were hanged for their attempt to destroy all of the Jews except one, Goering, because he killed himself in his prison cell. And if you go back, one of the sons of Haman took his own life. So, <laughs> and what's really wild is one of the Nazis, I forget his name now, you know, some very German sounding name, and I could, I could show you all this, but I'm just, look it up. Look up the Purim 1946 if, if, you, if you Google Purim 1946, P-U-R-I-M 1946, you'll see this whole thing. This guy goes to his death claiming, it's Purim all over again. The Nazis knew that they were trying to finish what Haman started. They knew that that's what they were doing because this was more than a cult of Hitler. This was a cult of destruction of the Jews. The Nazis were devoted more to the destruction of the Jews than anything else. Hitler made a tactical error, as you probably know, if you're a history person at all, because he under-equipped the people on the front in the Soviet Union or in Russia. The Russian front was under-equipped. They could have whipped the Russians if they'd have freed up the SS troops that were assigned to the death camps. And his generals told him, if you pull these guys off the death camp duty and send them up there, we can end this conflict with the Russians. And Hitler would have nothing to do with that. He would not allow his troops who were doing the destruction of the Jews to be pulled off of that task, even to save tens of thousands of his own countrymen who were fighting as his soldiers. So the question for tonight that we'll visit superficially and come back to more effectively next week is, 
what is up with this hatred for the Jews? Why is there a pathology of hatred for Jews? And why are there so many episodes throughout history of people trying to wipe out the Jews? I think there was one European country that allowed its citizens to possess arms, and that's one country Hitler did not attempt to overtake. He, he stayed away from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you look at the notes, and like I said, we'll come back to this next week, but if you go down there to number three, A, B, C, D, E, there are six well-known and somewhat universal theories for why historically the Jews have always been hated. And by the way, none of these hold any water. It doesn't take anything to figure out why they're wrong. But if you've lived long enough and you haven't been hiding under a rock, you've heard every one of these at some point in your life. Jews are hated because of the economic theory. They're hated because they seem to have more money and stuff than everybody else. They seem to control everything. Well, part of how I got hooked on Rabbi Lapham was because Dave Ramsey recommended him. And Dave Ramsey recommended his big book that only a Jew, an Orthodox Jew could write and get away with it in a politically correct society. He wrote a book about why Jews seem to do better with money. And the answer was, is because they follow the law of Moses. And the law of Moses teaches them how to prosper. And now it's become a part of their culture so that even Jews who aren't practicing their faith prosper simply because they do what their culture has always taught them to do. But there are thousands of examples throughout history of poverty-stricken Jews. The Polish ghettos that were completely wiped out by the Nazis, there wasn't any wealth in them at all. The Nazis didn't plunder the ghettos in order to get the money and stuff that was there. They went in there to kill the Jews. And it wasn't because of their wealth, because they were living in poverty. You know, so the whole wealth theory is completely irrelevant. The outsider theory, the Jews are hated because they're different from everybody else. Well, what does that even mean, really? I mean, how, how, how do you define anybody as being different? You know, we can, we can say that about anybody we want. We can say everybody that comes to Jasper from Pike County should be hated because they're from Pike County, and that makes them different from everybody else. You know, well, because we got a Walmart. That's why. I mean, you know, so it's like, okay, they're allowed in Walmart, but only Walmart, right? I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? The scapegoat theory, Jews are hated because they are the cause of all the world's problems. So basically people have just decided, but that doesn't hold water because you could pick anybody, right? You know, um, part of the problem with black uh, oppression in our country, even after slave, slavery, was they were perceived as dumb and ignorant and all this kind of stuff. Well, of course they were because the only way you could keep them as slaves was to make sure they were uneducated because if they were uneducated, then they didn't know how bad they had it. And all it took was educating somebody like a Frederick Douglass, and suddenly you've got proof that there's no 
substance to the idea that, that you know, they're different somehow. They're not different. The, the, the deicide theory, that's a strange word, but all it means is, is people hate the Jews because they killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Kennedy, who killed Jesus? The Romans killed Jesus, right? So shouldn't we hate all Romans? Are all Italians? It means we'd have to give up pasta, spaghetti, all that good stuff. <laughs> Italian sausage. I could never live without Italian sausage. So, and once you've had falafel, you'll say, well, I can't hate Jews either because I don't want to give up falafel. Right? So, so that's just idiotic. And, and honestly, Jesus forgave them, remember? One of the last things he said before he died was, Father, forgive him. You know? So that's ridiculous. The chosen people theory. People hate them because they claim to be the chosen. Well, I've known Jews over the years who claim they're chosen because they're better than everybody else. But the truth is, the Bible tells us differently. Their Bible tells us differently. Think about the story of Gideon. And now we're talking about the Gideons now, not Gideon Achi, right? The story of Gideon. He says to God, why pick me? I'm the least in my tribe. My tribe's the least among the tribes. You're picking the most unlikely hero you could ever pick. Why would you do that? And God just sort of chuckles and says, precisely, you know. And then he whittles them down even more. Well, if they drink with their face in the water, don't use them, you know, and all this stuff. But it really has nothing to do. There's all kinds of theories, but it really just boils down to this. God wanted to prove that as long as they were doing God's will, they couldn't fail. So who does God pick to do God's will? The least likely. He picks a, a carpenter and someone Kennedy's age to raise his son, starting with the scandal because Joe's not the, not the father of the child, right? God always delights in using the most unlikely. So if they're the chosen people, it means that they were the least likely people in all of human history to be the ones God would build everything that God planned around. So that theory doesn't hold any water. So let's read Romans 9, 3 to 5. Somebody dial it up and read it for us. Romans 9, 3 to 5. I'll read it. All right, let's hear it. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Okay. Why are the Jews hated, according to Paul? He didn't, say, he didn't say anything there about hatred, but listen to what he said about them and ask yourself, why does the world hate Jews? Because the world hates God. Who's behind the hatred? At the, it, it, when it's all said and done, who's behind the hatred? Yeah. And why does God... Why does Satan hate the Jews so much? Because they, he knows they are the ones through whom God will fulfill his destruction. And by the way, if he hates the Jews that much, then he's only going to hate us more. So as much as God hates the, or Satan hates the Jews, he hates the Christians even more. The problem we, and, and this is a hard thing to hear, and it's a topic for a different discussion, 
And you just have to take my word for it on that. And I'm glad to show you. But the problem for the Jews is, is because of the rejection of Jesus, they still have more suffering to endure. Scripture tells us that. We have protection against Satan because we've accepted Jesus. Doesn't mean we're better than them. They're still God's chosen. They're still covered by God's covenant. God made promises to those people that never end. And God will see them through. And a remnant of them will be with us one day, just as surely as... The Jews? Are you talking about the Jews? Yes, absolutely. God's not done with the Jews, and so we shouldn't be cruel or disrespectful or anything. You know. And yes, I understand there's an Israeli government, and just like all governments, there's some creepy people and shady people. You know, Every government's got its characters, its hucksters, its whatever... But when we talk about Judaism, when we talk about the people of the Torah, they are kindred. They are our blood. We are connected with them. And just like we can't say which ones are and which ones aren't, therefore we love them all like God sorted out. So our, our countries, you know, even though I don't like to mix politics and, and, and our religion, the reality is, is that I will always support our country supporting Israel. Because to me, that's a kind of obedience to our command to pray for Jerusalem and to support our kindred, you know, really comes down to that. Um, and honestly, if you want to know what the timeline is for the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan, as it's described in scripture, particularly Revelation, just watch Israel. That's all you got to do. Israel is God's clock. Watch Israel and you will see. You know what else happened in 46? And that's right there in scripture, right there in the... <laughs> Never been the same since. No, 46. So after World War II ended and all those Nazis had been, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was coincidental, it wasn't sequential. But in 46, Israel became a country. So the book of Esther is also describing the birth of the nation and the birth of the nation is described as one of the central prophetic events of all time. And so you say, I don't know if this stuff the Bible prophesies is really true or not. And all I can say is look at Israel. Israel's real. It's a nation. We're going to go visit it. And if you don't think it's a powerful nation, just wait until you go through customs and you go out in the bus and you start seeing a country that is as modern and committed, way more committed to its defense than we are. This, this country is placid and susceptible to all sorts of stuff compared to Israel. Israel's ready for a fight every day. And isn't it true, Pastor Dan, you talk about Kennedy? You'll see girls over there hurry with automatic weapons. Every young man, every young woman has compulsory military service. Women serve one year, men serve two, and they do it right after high school. So as soon as you get out of high school, you do your time in the military. And while you're in the military, you're issued a weapon, and you're expected to carry it at all times, whether you're on duty or off duty. So if we're driving around over there, and you see a bunch of people standing at a bus stop, even somebody who's wearing street clothes and they have an automatic weapon hanging over their shoulder, all that means is, is they're a soldier. 
that's it. It doesn't mean you need to be, and you know, it's kind of funny because, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm making this political, but we have all this debate about weapons in this country, and the reality is that everybody over there is armed, and they have a more peaceful society than we could ever hope for right now. Because you know what? Crazy Palestinian enemy of the Jews or just a crazy Jew? Because both have had, you know, like when I was there with my son Jonathan the last time, there was a crazy Jewish fella who bombed a bus. And he's just nuts. He was just, he was just like one of these school shooters or something. He was just somebody who was screwed up. And of course, you know, nothing about Israel ever makes the news here unless there's an explosion involved. So naturally, a day after we arrive in Jerusalem, my wife sees on TV that there's been a bus bombing in Israel. And what it was, and it was tragic, don't get me wrong, but what it was was one crazy guy bombing a bus because he was out of his head. And so, and the reason that nobody stopped him was because it wasn't expected because he didn't look like the typical bus bomber terrorist. And so they didn't see it coming, but they're ready for the ones they can see coming. And I, I, you know, say what you want, but those people are ready for a fight. And I feel safe when I'm over there, partly because I know, you know, they're ready for a fight. Um, And, but why shouldn't they be? Look at what's happened to those people. You know, look at what's happened to them. And what's really fascinating is that this country exists, this Israel exists because of Purim. Because of, so this week's lesson and I guess next week's lesson really have a lot to do with why people hate Israel. Next time, and, and by the way, so we have, Two more weeks after tonight, so um, next week and then the week after that, and then we'll have a break for fall break, and we're going to go ahead and break from our class, and part of the reason we're going to do that is because when you come back the week after fall break, George will be leading the class because some of us will be over in Israel, okay? So we'll pick up, we'll, next week we'll try to get started on, we'll get this wrapped up, and my goal is before we leave for fall break is to talk about Islam because now you've heard you know about the whole Jewish thing so then the next time we're going to talk about Islam and how it emerges and then we'll bring them back together again after Israel and see if we can show you how it all ties somebody want to pray us out George isn't here so Kennedy would you pray for us Come on, hold my hand. We'll do it together. I want to hear your prayer. Hold my hand. There you go. Let's do it. Father God, we just thank you for this wonderful day. And please let Kennedy know you just love her and want her to know how to pray out loud. And I've heard her doing it. She's good. We thank you for um, Pastor Dan's leadership as we try to understand all the goings on and, and how Satan is still active in trying to keep us separated from you. But yet we know that you win. And we love you and we honor you. And we thank you for all good things that we know come from you. Bring us back next week. Bring us a great week. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.